Well, I want to begin this morning by reading our passage. It is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Uh, It's the passage that we studied last week on the whole armor of God. And this morning, we're going to focus on verses 18 to 20, focusing on praying as the means of spiritual warfare. This is the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of God. Well, Paul describes the church as engaged in active warfare with forces of evil. It's obvious that we cannot hope to stand if we rely on our own arsenal. We have to put on the whole armor of God. God's armor includes truth, truth as it's been revealed to us by God, the mystery that's been revealed, righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ, peace, peace which has been purchased by the Redeemer's blood, faith, faith in Christ who's able to keep us and defend us, salvation, salvation that we have now and enjoy and participate in, scripture, The word of God, its doctrines, its instructions, its promises, all inspired by the Holy Spirit. Six pieces of armor make up the whole armor of God that we have available to us in Christ. But how do we put on this armor? Well, as I said last week, we do it by knowing these things and by doing these things. But there's one more way. There's one more way. Think for a moment, in ancient times when Israel went out into battle, the priests would sound their silver trumpets. That was the sound of prayer. The sound of Israel calling upon her God to lead and to fight for them because their earthly weapons were not enough. When Joshua fought against the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17, the victory came through prayer. As Moses sat on the rock, and held his arms up with Aaron and her on each side, praying. Later, when Israel fought the Philistines, it was the prophet Samuel who prayed. So if God's people, even in their earthly warfare, had been taught the absolute necessity of the Lord being with them, how much more do we need to be taught our need to pray in spiritual warfare? When our Lord was in the hour of evil, he prayed in Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will. When Paul was buffeted about by Satan, he prayed three times to the Lord, and his grace was sufficient for Paul. The importance of prayer is that it is ultimately God who brings us the victory. Because, as Paul has revealed to us, It's God's battle. And God has the armor that works, that stands against the schemes of the devil. 
His truth defeats lies. His righteousness defeats sin. His peace defeats Quelch's rebellion. His faith defeats unbelief. Salvation defeats death. Word is the sword of the spirit living and active, able to pierce the soul and discern the heart. And so how do we take up and how do we put on this armor? Well, lastly, Paul says we do that by praying. Jesus has not left us to forage for armor and weapons on our own. He supplies our very need, including his armor for us. I know that the picture of a Roman centurion can be a a helpful analogy. And in in him, in, in looking at the centurion, we see ourselves outfitted for earthly battle in a way that we understand. But Paul is preparing us for spiritual warfare. And Jesus is a far more useful picture. In the prophets and in the Psalms, God promised a Messiah who is Jesus Christ, and he's described him in this very armor. We looked at those passages last week in Isaiah and in the Psalms. Not a belt of letter, but a belt of truth. Not a breastplate of bronze, but a breastplate of righteousness. Not a shield of wood that catches arrows, but a shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts of the devil. Jesus is the fulfillment of this divine, messianic, warrior king promised to us in Psalm 68. Paul says this in verse uh, 8 of chapter 4. When Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. What gifts? Psalm 68 verse 35 says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. The gifts of power and strength. What we're talking about. The one who wears the armor gives it to his people. He empowers them. Jesus gives the whole armor of God to his people, the church. And so we ask for it. And we put it on by praying. We put on truth, faith, and righteousness by praying. We take up faith, salvation, and the word by praying. We are the needy ones, but he is the able one, and he's the giving one. We are his weak ones, but he is our strong one. So we ask, and he gives. We are made strong in the Lord when we depend upon the strength of his might. And we depend... By praying. If you want to follow along on the sermon outline, I think you'll find that helpful. Here's the theme. Praying is at the center of spiritual warfare. It is the most important means by which we are strengthened to stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil and to move the gospel mission forward. And so let's look again at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication... To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. As you can see, prayer is not a seventh piece of armor. It's an activity. It's foundational and continuous, this activity of praying. Before we come to the topic of spiritual warfare in Ephesians, we should already be communing with God in prayer. The people that Paul's been writing about, all through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and into 6 are praying people, communing with God. All prayer is an exercise of dependence on God. This praying here is tied to the armor of God and fighting in the armor of God. Because we are in Christ, we pray in the Spirit. Paul says pray in the Spirit. In the midst of spiritual warfare, it is the Holy Spirit of God who stands beside us, prompting us to pray, showing us what to pray for, telling us who to pray for, and energizing us to do it, quickening our hearts, the Bible says, that we would pray, to pray for ourselves and to pray for others, to depend on Christ, to wear his armor, and to stand in his power. We have to depend on him. We have to move towards him. That is what Paul has already done for us, praying 
Back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And what does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and... What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Well, what's that power like? Well, it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That power. Paul prays in the Spirit, asking God to fill us with the Spirit and for the Spirit then to give us wisdom in the revealing the knowledge of God to us, particularly for us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That power is the spiritual warfare power that we're looking at in chapter 6. The resurrection power of Christ. How do we know that? Well, listen to how he describes it. This is the same power, the same great might that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And, is that all? It only got him raised from the dead? No, it seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Is that all? No, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, far above all power and dominion, and above every name that can be named or is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Is it only for now? No, it's forever. That power. That would seem to be a power above all other powers. Can we agree with that? Yes. But how can we possibly be strengthened by that power? How can we become strong in the power and strength of his might? How can we stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil? It's simple. God has put all things, that power, under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to his church, which is his body. And Christ, the head of the church, fills his body, the church, with the fullness of himself, including his power. This power is given to the church, us. And Paul has prayed for what he is now telling us to do. What Paul is telling us to do in chapter 6, he's already prayed that we would do in chapter 1, to be strong in the Lord. And he's telling us to pray in the Spirit, asking God to empower his church to be and do what he has created the church to be and do. We're on the hook. We're on the hook. This is the church. This is what we're to be. And this is what we're to do. And this is the power we have with which to do it. And so we're to pray at all times with all prayers and with all perseverance for all the saints. I don't see any reasons to limit the types of prayers Paul's calling for here. You see, those who think that praying in the Spirit means somehow praying in tongues, however they define that, actually limit the full range of what Paul is saying here about the work of the Spirit in prayer. It's broad to begin with. Public prayers, private prayers, make supplication for yourself, make petition for others, all kinds of prayers. Just be sure that in praying, you actually pray. Praying, Paul says, pray. The redundance is a further emphasis to pray. He can't say it loud enough. The one thing you cannot do, if you hope to stand, if the church hopes to stand, is to not pray. That's the one option that's not open to you if you hope to stand. Danger lies in prayerlessness. The prayerless church is a defeated church. So what might we pray for? What might we pray for? 
Well, we're at the end of the letter of Ephesians, so let's just consider the things that Paul has written so far in the letter of Ephesians. What you might expect the church to pray for. What's critical to a well-functioning army all suited up for war? I submit to you that it goes back to Paul's marching orders for the church, which he began in chapter 4. I think Paul would expect the church to pray for her basic nature, found in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, hearing, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think Paul would have the army that's the church pray for unity, for oneness. I think Paul would expect the church to pray for her basic goal, which is also in chapter 4 in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think we should be praying for growth and maturity, Christ-likeness. And surely, as God answers our many prayers for one another and for the church, we should give thanks. It's, it's kind of one of those big things in the Christian life. We're supposed to be thankful people. Remember his instruction in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Those things aren't to be named among people who are in the church, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. How do we give thanks to God? But by prayer. In chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Make melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Pray at all times or, or pray without ceasing. I think this is linked to Paul's instructions in chapter 5, verse 16, where he said, remember to make the best use of time because the days are evil. So pray all the time. Whatever time you have. Pray at all times. One, because you never know when you will come under spiritual attack. Pray all the time because you never know when you will come under spiritual attack. Two, there is probably somebody in your church, you have a brother and sister, who is already under spiritual attack. So you should be praying all the time. After instructing us to make all kinds of prayers and supplication, Paul pivots and places an emphasis on praying for others in the church. He says, to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. To what end? Praying. To the end of praying. You're supposed to be praying. And to that end, so that you would pray. In order to pray well and to pray effectively in spiritual warfare, Paul identifies three specific things that we're to do. One, be alert. Be watchful. Two, persevere. Keep doing it. And three, you're to be praying for all the other saints in the church. Because here's the emphasis. Paul sees prayer as an extraordinary opportunity to appeal to God on behalf of all the believers in the church. So we need to be alert. We need to be watchful. How can I pray for you? Well, I've got to have my eyes open and my head up. I need to see what's going on in your life and in our church's life. Think about this. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he told them to watch while he prayed. But they fell asleep. And so he told them again 
watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, here's a nice little hint from Jesus. Watchfulness and prayerfulness is helpful in avoiding temptation. But you can't do that by yourself because you have blind spots. And there's more also than just you to protect. It's all the people in the church. So the whole church, all the saints, are in this battle together. Spiritual warfare and prayer have a corporate nature to them. It's not the American individual nature, it's a corporate nature. We are Christ's one body, the church, putting on the whole armor of God. Some of us are new to the faith. We don't know where the armor goes. Yet we put the belt where the breastplate's supposed to go and put the sword over here somewhere where the helmet's supposed to be. We're just new. Others are mature in the faith. They're done putting on the armor of God before we've even found out where the belt's hanging. Some of us are strong in the faith. And some of us are weak in the faith. But we are all responsible too, as members of the one body, pray for one another to be armed and to stand. We can't afford prayerlessness as a church. So Paul says persevere in praying. Keep Praying. Don't be distracted. Anybody have a problem with being distracted when they try to pray? Okay. Six and the others are lying. <laughs> or just not participating in the survey. That would be another way they say it. Just not participating in the survey. Don't fall asleep. Gosh, I'd rather take a nap than pray right now. Don't forget to pray for others. I mean, you can all agree that there is much, much that I need to pray for about myself. How could I possibly have time to pray for you? You're counting on my prayers, and I'm counting on your prayers. Think of the myriad difficulties, temptations, and trials that your brothers and sisters are wrestling against right now. The people in this room, these are dark days. If not for you, for somebody in the church. Paul says, depend on God in prayer. Be on alert for your brothers. Pray always for your sisters. Be persistent. Be obstinate. Be undeterred. Keep praying. It's war. It's war. Keep praying. You could get the idea if you looked at the evangelical landscape in America that church was about one or two superstars and that's who you need to look to. It's not. It's about all of us. Strongest and the weakest. It's about one well-functioning body. The church. And we are built up by our worthy walking with one another and our faithful praying for one another. That's how we're strengthened. Here, Paul is telling us to pray specifically to be strong in Christ. That's our context, by putting on his armor. And he has already prayed for us to be armed. We can follow the model that he has set for us in prayer. Back in chapter 3, verse 14 and on. Turn back to chapter 3. Begin in verse 14. Here's, here's Paul again. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. Paul is praying. He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying with alertness for the church to be strengthened with the power of God through the Spirit of God so that the Son of God would be ruling in our hearts. 
And if he rules in all of our hearts, he rules in the church. He's given us his truth and his righteousness, his peace, faith, salvation, and his word. Paul is praying that we would know him, Jesus Christ, who has loved us, and that Christ would fill us with the fullness of God, which includes God's power. It is by the love of God that we will stand. And it is by the love of God that the church will move forward in battle. When we engage in spiritual warfare, we don't hurt anybody. It's not about real fists and real wrestling and real swords. When we fight, we love as Christ has loved us. Listen to how Paul describes Epaphras. Epaphras is the pastor of the church in Colossae. And Epaphras has gone to Rome and he's visited Paul for a while to bring him some help. And Paul writes this about him in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. This is how he writes to Epaph- about Epaphras back to the church. He says, Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling. It's this same word that we read here, wrestling. Wrestling against. Always wrestling on your behalf. How? In his prayers. Epaphras is always wrestling on your behalf for the church, for the other saints in the church, in his prayers, that you may do what? Stand. Stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. It sounds to me like Epaphras does this well. Epaphras looks like another example that we could follow in what Paul is saying right here. Epaphras was wrestling, praying for all the saints so that the church would stand firm. Firm to resist the devil's attacks, if you want to say defense, and firm to move the gospel mission forward, if you want to say offense, to proclaim the saving love of God that we have found in Christ. And so pray for the church. And pray for the church to boldly proclaim Christ. Pick up in verse 19. Praying, pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I think a few things are happening here at the end of Paul's instructions to the church, and they're happening at the same time. One, Paul is asking for prayer because he really needs it. Paul's asking for prayer genuinely because he really needs it. Two, prayer and evangelism come together and are joined. They come into focus for us to see together right here at the end. I think that's kind of interesting. I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's happenstance. And three, like a good teacher, Paul hands the church an opportunity to practice what he's just instructed them to do. Here are your instructions. Here's an opportunity to do it. Here's a shovel-ready prayer project for you. Let me just set it in front of you. Pray for gospel words to be given. Here's an opportunity for the church to engage in spiritual warfare by praying alertly for Paul, who needs to be strengthened. Which, which We're just not sure we believe that Paul needs to be strengthened. He's Paul. Some may be tempted to think that Paul... Christ's apostle to the Gentiles is beyond need of prayer. Paul absolutely thinks he's in great need of prayer. And he asks for it. He humbles himself to ask for it. Pray for me that I would have strength to stand and declare, Paul asks. Paul needs power to resist temptation to be intimidated by his circumstances. And he needs divine enablement to declare the gospel boldly and clearly. Paul believes what he's teaching. That prayer is going to be necessary because he's engaged in spiritual warfare. And he needs the whole armor of God. And he's asking the church to dress him in it. So Paul asks for words to be given him. Gospel words to speak out loud. Words that will communicate the mystery of Christ clearly. But Paul has already been given those words. I mean, we're a little bit incredulous. Wait a minute, Paul knows what to say. Paul's been given these words, and he has, back in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 
Remind yourselves of this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And this mystery is the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Yes, Paul knows these words. But Paul's not just teaching these words. This is spiritual warfare. So Paul asks for prayer for the divine deployment of these words. Remember the word? Gift of armor number six? He has the word, but he's asking that it be deployed. Power to put the best words together in each unique situation in a timely manner with maximum effect. He knows the words, but he's not depending on his knowledge. He's depending on the power of God. Paul wants to experience the direct guidance from God that Moses experienced back in Exodus chapter 4 when God told Moses, Moses, now go, and I will open your mouth and teach you what you're to say. Paul wants to experience that. It comes from prayer. Paul wants to obey Jesus who told his disciples in Luke chapter 21, settle in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Paul wants that. Paul wants the words that come from God, that work like a sword. Why is Paul so dependent on God? What, what forces is he wrestling with? I mean, he's just kind of on vacation, right? He's sitting in prison right now. Nowhere to go. <clears throat> Paul, sitting in prison very soon, will have the opportunity to speak to Nero. And the presiding leaders over the empire of Rome It's a little intimidating. He is surely under spiritual attack. Surely the devil doesn't want Paul's words to find Nero's heart. Surely, surely the fiery darts are firing at him. I don't think we can even imagine what Paul is facing in terms of of spiritual attack as he writes this letter. And so he says to normal, plain old brothers and sisters in a local church, pray for me also. He asked twice for boldness. The word boldness contains the idea of confidence. Let me have unwavering, unassailable confidence in the gospel that I speak. You see, in Christ we're free to speak the truth openly and candidly. You are. I am. We're free to speak the truth confidently and boldly. And the power to do so comes from Christ. And we access his power in dependent prayer and supplication. So if you're not sharing the gospel freely, it may be that you're not praying. Now I've switched from Paul to you. You may have noticed that. I switched from talking about Paul to talking about us. Paul and the church, that's us, have bold access to gospel words and power to proclaim them according to chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. If we were to continue on, remember what Paul said about this gospel message that he has. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, 
This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That sounds like the church doing spiritual warfare to me. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have, we us, me, Paul, and the church in Ephesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. We need to pray for boldness to declare the mystery. We have been given words, Paul says, Paul gave them to us. Paul has made known to us the same mystery of the gospel that was made known to him by God's grace. So Paul's request for boldness to proclaim the gospel is representative of us, the church. We have been commissioned by Jesus to proclaim the gospel by his authority. We too are ambassadors and to baptize disciples in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not happenstance that praying for spiritual strength and declaring the gospel come together at the end of Paul's instruction in this letter. It's kind of the exclamation point on the whole thing. They point to the mission of the church. What's your mission? We live to see the power of God on display in the salvation of sinners and in the building up of the saints through the proclamation of his gospel by all of our members. No one gets a pass. All for the glory of God. It's our mission. So we pray from, I won't read it this time, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, to the God who saves sinners, asking him to make dead people alive in Christ. And yet we must still speak the gospel. And we pray from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, that, that God would build up his church because he's the one who builds up. But we still must do the teaching and the obeying to be built up. Now think for a minute about Paul's words about being an ambassador for Christ. How is an ambassador supposed to be treated by the country that he visits? He's to be treated with the respect due to the king that he represents. Rome is a capital city full of ambassadors from all places. There's only one who's sitting on a cold jail floor. How's Paul being treated? He's being treated like his king was treated. Paul has an official office and an authorized message to deliver from King Jesus. Oh, oh, who's he? He's the one above every name that can be named. And yet it's no surprise to us that he's an ambassador in chains, is it? They treated Jesus the same way, with dishonor and inhumiliation. He's shamed by the world. And as he writes this letter, Paul is living in the shame of the gospel. But he understood what that meant. So he wrote to the church in Rome saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> People may shame me for the gospel, but I'm not ashamed in the gospel. And, and, and he, even trained, he even trained young Timothy in the same thing. He wrote Timothy saying, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, nor ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. How? How? By the power of God. Which is what he's talking about. Paul's call to be Christ's ambassador transcended his shameful existence. The word shamed him, the world shamed him, and the world shamed Christ. But Paul was not ashamed. And the church cannot be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ or of the gospel. We're ambassadors for Christ and his gospel. 
It's his gospel message that we declare, and no other message. Paul was called to speak the gospel as he ought, and we are called to speak the gospel as we ought. And how can we do that without being ashamed? By the power of God. So, we pray and put on the armor of God. And we stand firmly in his power and proclaim the gospel clearly as we should. I wanted to finish with just a couple of uh, helpful reasonings, practical applications in our spiritual warfare. I, <laughs> I stumbled across this. Uh, it was a really short sermon. I don't know who this guy was, but he's, he's British clearly because I could tell by his accent. And he was talking about spiritual warfare and prayer. And uh, I, I didn't write down everything, but he, he had seven things that prayer does in our spiritual warfare. And I just wrote down those seven things. And I want to comment on them because I, I, thought it was, I thought it was inspiring. I hope you'll find it inspiring. What does prayer, maybe this will hit a target, do in your spiritual warfare? First, prayer sets our souls near to God. Prayer sets our souls near to God. James said that. James says we draw near to God in prayer. See, when you are alone, you are vulnerable. But when you pray, it brings Christ, who is your captain, near. Right there on the battlefield. He's not leading from behind. Second, prayer creates within us a holy awe and a godly fear. If you're in the middle of a battlefield and everything's going on all around you, in the midst of that battle, we become profoundly aware of the immeasurable greatness of the power of God. When you look up, like, like Moses and Aaron and Hur did, and said, who's going to win this battle? Oh my goodness, God's here. He's going to win this battle. His power is awesome and it's fearful. And it creates within us a holy awe and a godly fear. Third, prayer brings an influence to bear upon us. That's, I guess, English talk. <laughs> prayer brings an influence to bear upon us. However weak and vulnerable we feel, God cares. We know that God cares. Peter tells us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Prayer brings the care of God upon us. We have a sovereign, if unseen, protector. Fourth, prayer brings us into personal contact with God. You know, that's, what your, that's what your quiet time in the morning is supposed to be. I'm, I'm praying, I'm communing with God in prayer. And if I'm with Him, I'll never be moved because he'll never be moved. Fifth, prayer is the means by which God undertakes for us. I like that. Prayer is the means by which God undertakes for us. Prayer brings God to act for us. So we pray every Sunday, don't we? Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a spiritual warfare prayer for the power of God. Six, God gives strength. God gives strength. Remember Samson? Poor Samson. Tried so hard, got so much wrong, and yet he's a judge of the Lord. Remember Samson in the temple of the Philistines, blind and beaten, once strong, now powerless, and he prayed. He prayed that God would strengthen him just once more. Lord, would you strengthen me? And he put himself on the columns of the temple and God strengthened him at the very last. And he brought the just judgment of God on more Philistines and his death than he did through his life. The God who strengthens Samson is the God who can strengthen us. God gives power to the weak, to those who have no might. He increases their strength, the psalmist says. Seventh, God gives holiness to his people. He gives his spirit and leads according to his holiness. 
You see, putting on the whole armor of God, it's really the same thing as walking in a manner worthy of the calling of God. The armor of God is part of the every spiritual blessing that God has given us in Christ all the way back in chapter 1. These are the things, the sweet things, that prayer does, that prayer brings to your spiritual warfare. But there's a flip side to that, isn't there? There's a flip side to that. The flip side is not praying. What does prayerlessness do for you in your spiritual warfare? Can you afford to be prayerless? Since God is the source of our overcoming and the source of our conquest, you can't afford to be prayerless. You can't afford to be prayerless when personal temptation comes. Prayerless, you will fall before you have a chance to stand. Have you ever stopped and just wondered why you fail so easily in the face of temptation? Have you ever thought about that? Evaluated it? Is it because you haven't been praying? Sure, you cry out in desperation when you fall into the pit again. But have you prayed beforehand for the armor of God to fight the fight? Or you pray for a different outcome. Lord, I want a different outcome. But you fail to ask for the armor to fight the fight with. Paul says, ask for the armor to fight the fight with. The armor works. Righteousness defeats sin. Two, you can't afford not to pray always. You just can't. I know it's quite an investment to pray always, isn't it? But you can't afford not to. Temptation comes when? When you least expect it. He's a scheming devil. Strategic in letting his arrows fly. The devil's dark schemes, they're camouflaged with light. Oh, here looks like a good opportunity. No. You never know when you're going to be ambushed. You can't afford not to pray always. You also can't afford not to pray with all prayers and supplications. You, nor your church, can afford to not persevere in prayer for one another. Your witness is at stake. Your soul is at stake. The witness of your church is at stake, which means the reputation of Christ in this community is at stake. Is that worth praying for? You can't afford to not make supplications, petitions for your brothers and sisters. Make requests. Ask God. Beg God for deliverance from temptation. For strength in weakness. And from humiliation after having fallen to sin. Yeah, heartfelt repentance. Ask for repentance. You can't afford not to pray in the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that enlightens our minds to know what to pray and quickens us to pray. Sometimes we would sleep rather than pray. Sometimes we would diminish the importance of prayer by avoiding prayer gatherings because, well, they're just boring. And the church isn't actually doing anything. They're just praying. No church will stand firm without gathered prayer. Certainly, no church will advance without gathered prayer. You can't afford to not be watching. Keep an eye on the needs for prayer, yours and others. Keep eyes on the absence of prayer. An absence of prayer should cause great and immediate concern. Brothers and sisters, it's an alarm. If you're not praying, you're in danger. And if you don't think you're in danger from not praying, you're really in danger. Determine what it is that hinders your prayers. By the way, the first thing to look for is sin. It will hinder your prayers. And realize that Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. I love that little ditty. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint 
upon their knees. Why? Because praying means depending on God. And if you ask for power, you will have it. God says, call upon me and I will answer you. And answered prayer will bring you to thanksgiving. Lastly, you can't afford to not persevere in praying. You just can't. We can't. Think about how many times you have fallen. Would you give up now? No. Pray. Pray. As long as there's sin, pray. As long as temptation is real, pray. As long as there's a possibility of falling, pray. As long as you live, pray. Pray with your last breath. Dear friend, what do you need right now? What do you need right now? Where are you weak and how do you need to be strengthened right now? Pray. Pray, he who is able will hear your prayer. Pray, he who is giving will hear your prayer. And he will answer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your power that you give to us in Christ. We thank you for our brothers and sisters who pray for us. We thank you for your spirit who indwells us and gives us confidence in the gospel. Father, help us, give us the fortitude, the perseverance to just set other things aside and to spend time praying for one another and for your church that you may be glorified through your people. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.